I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 90 for January 2021. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1990 had a few notable films. Aside from the big hits like uh, Home Alone, Pretty Woman and Edward Scissorhands, there was Natasha Richardson in the original Handmaid's Tale. Uh, Peter Greenaway gave us the brutal formalist, the cook, the thief, his wife, her lover. Wonderful. Uh, Nick Nolte's committed and ugly performances, Sidney Lumet's Q&A. Mel Gibson doing Hamlet. Yes. <laughs> uh, Arnie going to Mars in Total Recall. A trio of tough gangster classics, Scorsese's Goodfellas, Abel Ferreira's King of New York, and the Coen Brothers' brilliant Miller's Crossing. I also want to highlight one of my wife's guilty pleasures. Pacific Heights was also released in 1990. <laughs> Sold as the first eviction thriller. It is an over-the-top tenant vendetta against landlords film starring Michael Keaton in between Batman films. We had uh, the second installments of Predator and Die Hard, the third and concluding installments of The Godfather and Back to the Future, and the fifth installment of the Rocky series. I'm sure it's going to be the last, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Stallone did too. Uh, that's still the only one I haven't seen. Rocky Five. Yeah, I've not seen Rocky Right, Five. okay. Yeah, I've seen all the others. Never seen Rocky Five. Oh, wow. I just, it holds no appeal either. Yeah. And even at the time, it's like, I don't want to see that one. No, I think, uh, I didn't watch it at the time, and I think I watched it later. I think I, yeah. I went through a, I think I got a box set off someone and I right. ended up watching kind of, they had it and I was like, ah, I've watched the other four, I might as well yeah. five. get out of the yeah. way. And also look, there's a couple of personal favourites of mine, uh, David Lynch's Hilarious Violence and Captivating Wild at Heart, Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues with a fantastic jazz soundtrack by Branford Marcellus. And look, did you know there was a sequel to Chinatown called The Two Jakes? I, I've uh, made a promotion for it. Yeah. And I'm just one of the few people who actually kind of liked it. Yeah, I like it too. Yeah. Um, is it as good as the original? Forget it. It's not Chinatown. Um, <laughs> uh, and a film that would mean a lot to me on VHS uh, with an absolutely blinding soundtrack with the Pixies, Sonic Youth, Bad Brains and Soundgarden. Christian Slater playing a rebel DJ who creates a radio station in his basement to talk truth to the youth. Pump of the Volume was on heavy rotate in my VCR back in the day. Yeah, it was pretty popular with me as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I must watch that a lot. And I was, it was just like my, yeah, man. Yeah. Screw the man. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slater, he was so cool. He was so cool. Briefly, eh? You know, yeah. It was that period. And I got to give credit. You know, like that soundtrack is amazing. Um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't have on it um, the opening song, which is, of course, Leonard Cohen, uh, everybody knows. And so I got to give him credit. He got me into Leonard Cohen as well. So, mm, you know. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, the 90s kicks off with a dramatic drop off in horror quality. Uh, Sequel wise, there was no Friday, no Nightmare, and no Halloween, which feels odd. Uh, there was a Chainsaw Massacre with Part Three, a second, a second Child's Play flick, and a third Exorcist. This one written and directed by the writer of the original novel, uh, William Peter Blatty, and it's a film that a lot of horror fans love. Though I'm only kind of lukewarm on. Mm-hmm. The best stuff seems to be the grimiest. Uh, I've got a gooey soft spot for Lucio Fulci's lazy but awesomely titled Cat in the Brain. <laughs> Great poster as well. A uh, little more than a collection of gross-out moments from his previous films linked with a plot in which the director himself, traumatised by his back catalogue of uh, carnage, believes he's, he is on a killing spree. Right. Yeah, or maybe he is. Oh, yeah. wow. It's kind of baddie and kind of fun and has an awesome poster. Uh, Basket Case director Frank Henenlotter returns with two films. The first a sequel to Basket Case, the second the deranged Frankenhooker, <laughs> with the incredible tagline, a terrifying tale of sluts and bolts. <laughs> oh, if you want to see some uh, exploding hookers, that's a good one. Uh, that, that is probably the best f- uh, film to go for, for exploding hookers. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, it's a small pool, but yeah, that would be I'm the top sure which, <laughs> What number two and three would be on that list. <laughs> uh, staying in the horror gutter, there was killer monkey movie Shakma, right. uh, wild trailer. The infamous Troll 2, <laughs> Roger Corman's return to the director's chair with Frankenstein Unbound, and one of the worst films I've ever seen, horror or otherwise, Killer Sewer Baby Flick The Suckling. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, Stephen King had a trio of releases this year, the best of course being Misery, mm-hmm. and the man King called the future of horror, Clive Barker, directed his second feature, Nightbreed, a film I kind of adore because of its love for all things monstrous, and the casting of David Cronenberg himself, 
as the film's nastiest character. <laughs> it's lovely to see. And before I go on to the film I really want to talk about, I want to say that I'm shook, absolutely <laughs> shook as the kids say, that I haven't seen spontaneous combustion. Just because young Simon was kind of terrified of the idea that he might just randomly explode. You know? <laughs> right, this is a fear of yours? Yeah, I, I'm not, a, not like a massive fear, but I read books about like spontaneous human combustion and <laughs> right. I was like, God, this could just happen, eh? You'd just be sitting there and then boom, you're in flames. <laughs> what a terrifying yeah, idea. It's like you're in scanners or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, pretty yeah. much. And just like it could happen at any time. Right. Um, or, or the film with the maybe the best, worst title of 1990, I bought a vampire motorcycle. <laughs> How these two films escaped me is kind of staggering. Um, I've got to do something about that, actually. And maybe I'll make that my New Year's thing. Yeah, New Year's too. resolution. Yeah. Watch more horror films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really need to up that. Eh? Yeah. But a film that did not escape me, a film whose poster hung on my teenage self's war, was Hardware. Mm. Uh, combining all the elements that should appeal to teenage Simon in the first place. A slasher film format, a little bit of an art film stylings, uh, a rock and roll soundtrack a Mad Maxian post-apocalyptic setting, and a kick-ass-looking robot. Hardware pilfered from 2000 AD, allegedly, mm -hmm. to create a fun little thriller with a great poster featuring a robotic skull with with like hypodermic needles for teeth and the stars and stripes adorning its metal head. I remember seeing that, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, director Richard Sandy would go on to direct The Pretty Great Dust Devil before basically becoming famous for his involvement in The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> And then returning, it would seem, over 20 years later to let Nick Cage loose in colour out of space. What right. a life. Yeah. He's got some stories, I bet. Uh, he sure does, eh? <laughs> he did hardware work with Nick Cage and, uh, and did Islander Dr. Moreau. So. Yeah, yeah. Got yeah. fired from um, yeah. Dr. Moreau. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so what have you been watching? Look, I, I just spoke of Branford Marcellus's beautiful soundtrack for Mo Better Blues. Wow. Well, he delivers again for the film that grabbed my attention this month, which was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, Netflix production of August Wilson's play The author of the Oscar winning Fences uh, This is also uh, produced by Denzel Washington The star of Fences and, and this one stars Viola Davis once again As a successful black singer Ma Rainey in the 1920s Recording songs on a hot summer's day with a band Davis adds to her usual Inimitable presence by putting on bulk And thick makeup She's a really powerful character Sticking to her self-belief um, Ma Rainey has to battle with a slick Charismatic Levy played by the late, great Chadwick Boseman. Two excellent actors going head-to-head -head for the spotlight during the recording sessions. While Davis owns the screen with her Force of Nature character, overall, this is Boseman's chance to shine in what would be his last film, unfortunately. Presenting a multi-dimensional character who initially seems like a kind of naive dreamer, then a calculating, experienced man forged in fire, as we kind of find out his backstory. And Boseman gives us the kind of performance that receives awards, frankly. And as we've said kind of off mic a couple of times. What are the Oscars going to look like this year? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure what kind of shape they're going to end up in, uh, but a front runner, I would say, for best actor would be this man for wow. this role. The film can never successfully throw off the stagey nature of the play. Then again, you know, are, are there many stage adaptations that do? I can't mm. really think of that many. It offers more visual flair than the recent Fences adaptation. It has humour and pathos. Uh, and worth watching for the uniformly excellent performances, including Glenn Turman as the elder piano player in the troupe. Uh, he's so memorable as the mayor in The Wire and recent series um, of Fargo, where he plays the excellently uh, named Dr. Senator. Uh, and Terman is the yin to Bozeman's yang as they represent the different generational approaches to dealing with a racist system. And because while the band bicker amongst themselves, it is under the umbrella of the white-owned studio demanding the recordings are done in the fashion they deem appropriate. So these kind of other characters are fighting each other mm. for, you know, working under these conditions. And Ma Rainey's Black Bottom finishes with a simultaneously upbeat and cynical ending. Great music flowing in your ears and your eyes taking in cruel cultural exploitation. Wow. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out on Netflix. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really strong. And, and Boseman's great in this. You know, he's really um, different than I've seen him in other films. A lot of the ones I've seen him, obviously, Black Panther, um, but in 42 where he played Jackie Robinson. Uh, you know, even when he's playing James Brown, strong and powerful, yeah. you know, um, in some cases intimidating characters, but he's he's so good in this. He he does he does a role so well. Uh, yeah, I recommend checking it out. And the, the music's in it's fantastic too. So, yeah, really entertaining film. Wow. Well, well, look, I mean, I... What have you been watching? I've obviously gone the other way. <laughs> uh, look, I did watch some good films last month. I really did. But I feel I need to talk about a not very good film I watched. 
You see, every episode of Spoiler Alert begins in the same way, with the drawling, devilish tones of Glenn Danzig singing Hollywood Babylon <laughs> with the rest of the misfits. So I just had to give his 2019 directio- directorial debut, Verotica, <laughs> a watch. <laughs> it felt like the least I could do. Mm. And folks, it was woeful. Danzig directs, writes, is one of the directors of photography and a producer, but alas, he is not good at any of these things. <laughs> the pacing is appalling. You could easily tighten the film by a third and it would be a lot better, though still, you know, terrible. Mm. The script is rugged and the actors aren't in any way good enough to do anything with it. Occasionally it's clear that Danzig has seen an image in an actual good film, which he tries to replicate, but mostly <laughs> this is a stylish slog. He doesn't direct with an eye to how the film would fit together either. Every scene finishes with like a slow fade to black. Right. <laughs> Action scenes in particular seem to be Danzig's kryptonite, as he doesn't seem to understand how one shot should cut to another shot. <laughs> uh, the first tale is the best. But it's a series of short stories with horror themes. Uh, is the best, mainly because the unnecessary French accents are so awful uh, that they're hilarious. You know, <laughs> The monster design is laughable. You can see the creature's seams in many shots. You, know, you right. can see where they've put this person into this outfit. And it has a character who has eyeballs where their nipples should be. <laughs> uh, nipple eyes that cry when she's sad as well. Nipple eyes. Nipple eyes that cry. And yet, this is never explained and has no impact on the story going forward. It's introduced at the beginning and then kind of forgotten about it, I guess, as you do. Oh, this is, this is a, you know, he's obviously not listening to Chekhov's, you know, thing yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I if you I, introduce nipple eyes, you I think the reference once pay off. again, but yet they have no impact on the story. <laughs> it's not important. Forget about the nipple eyes. <laughs> Everyone like fixating on nipple eyes. <laughs> uh, all in all, a terrible, terrible film. Absolutely rotten. It was like if a teenager who knew nothing about the process of making a film decided to write and direct a film because they'd watched Mario Barber's Black Sabbath and liked it and had seen breasts and also liked those. Yeah. Uh, so I decided that was all the prep necessary, basically. <laughs> I rated a 1 out of 10 and also a 9.5 out of 10. Uh, <laughs> If I was still doing a Halloween movie nights, I would schedule it in a heartbeat. Oh, brilliant. That, that's about as much uh, recommendation as you need, basically. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. it's wonderful in a certain way. Yeah. But, it's, it's you know, I think I've said this to you before. We live in an age where it's actually really hard to make a truly, mm. truly horrible film because there's enough people with technical nows to save you from that. Yeah. You know, um, and particularly at the Hollywood level. I mean, to yeah. make a really rotten film must be almost impossible because mm. someone's going to step forward and save something from it. Yeah. Not Veronica. <laughs> <laughs> there's no one working in this film who's really... And that's probably because Glenn Danzig's <laughs> doing all the jobs. So there's really no one but Glenn. And, um, and yeah. also it's got this cast list at the beginning and I don't know any of the names, right. but they're all names like um, Angel Ebony or something like that. Oh, right, they're all... They're all sex workers, essentially, because right. who else is going to do this film for of you? Of course, yeah. You know, except for strippers. Yeah. And, of course, there are stories set in strip clubs because yeah, long, dull stories <laughs> set in strip clubs. Uh, I like I like Danzig just doing this kind of Robert Altman-esque kind of uh, film, you know, all these different stories going on there, you know, like he's doing shortcuts or something. You know, <laughs> which is, uh, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. I'd like to see him direct shortcuts. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I just I just like the, you, you kind of felt compelled to watch it. I was thinking about our, our patron saints. We've kind of got Danzig, you know, we've got Adam Sandler, we've got Lars von oh, yeah. Trier, you know, we've got like a few people who... It's questionable decisions well, I mean, in films. Like I say, Danzig kicks off every episode of this, so <laughs> how could I not watch this film? And also I was put onto, I've got to say, by this Facebook page I'm following called Auckland Horror Fans. I think the moderator of the page was talking it up as a truly legendarily terrible film, so I had to give it a go. Nice work. Report back. Oh, I'm, I'm, gl- wrong. I'm glad you jumped on that grenade for the listeners and I. Yeah, no one needs to watch this, <laughs> but also maybe you do. Themes have been used up, turned into theme parks. So I don't really find it exactly cheerful to be living in the middle of a totally like exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. All right, so uh, we decided since it's 2021, now is a great time to look back at the last 10 years in cinema. Yeah. And sort of pick our 10 best of. Yeah. Or at least, I think in some cases, uh, 10 favourite or maybe... Ten influential, yeah. Sort of ten films that really stood out for us over yeah. the last ten years or so. That's right, ten years, a, a decade worth of cinema that we're going to cover, in just ten films. Yeah, there are films that just speak to you. Something sparks, and while it may not be perfect, it is a perfect film for you. And that's how I feel about Nightcrawler. From the opening frame, seeing Jake Gyllenhaal's character 
blankly attempt to talk his way out of a trespassing charge to the final shot of that same blank stare smiling out of the empire he has built. I'm entranced by the clean slate of amorality that is Lou Bloom. Tony Gilroy's framing fizzes with kinetic energy. Gyllenhaal's performance is a perfect marriage of actor and character, a wiry man with no need for friends, scruples, or even sleep. Gilroy has created a character of pure capitalism, a man who feeds on opportunity and manipulates reality to his benefit. The most cutthroat people are destroyed by Lou, and even they are shocked by his unbelievable ruthlessness. And of course, there's the pitiable sight of Riz Ahmed's doe-eyed sidekick getting pulled across boundary after boundary. The film is a perfect blend of humour, horror and suspense. The audience's complicity with Bloom is complete by the end of the film, marvelling at his ingenuity on tenterhooks as a part of us wants Lou to succeed in his master manipulation. His war of attrition against René Rousseau is perhaps the most startling. A couple of devastating monologues of pure desire presented as a list of demands that would make a late 90s Neil Butte doff his cap to his audacity. <laughs> the film has so many memorable sequences. Lou being first on the scene and improving the mise-en-scene so it's more visually pleasing, uh, creeping into a murder scene as it's happening, and the fast and furious finale where he becomes part of the car chase between cops and robbers. They are all visceral scenes throwing the viewer into the midst of the action and are concurrently thrilling and darkly funny, and Nightcrawler is like its lead character, taut, relentless, focused, and driven. Perfect. What a great film. Yeah, I love that film so much. Yeah, um, I I didn't end up putting it on my list, and... Probably easily could have because I loved it as well. I was really impressed by it. Yeah, and and I read a really interesting thing with uh, Gilroy where he was saying, you know, he explained it to Gyllenhaal. And he basically Gyllenhaal was his first pick for the role, and he did it. And um, he said that uh, he didn't see him as a bad guy. He basically said this is a love story to the American dream to capitalism. Right. That's how he saw it as. Yeah. And I I love that. Yeah, it's yeah, just completely yeah, yeah. amoral in every sense of the word. But uh, yeah, I, I could watch it. It's one of those films that you can, I could just watch over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, fantastic choice. All right, for my first pick. Uh, look, the impact Christopher Nolan's Batman films had on popular cinema was extraordinary. He may be the worst successful action director, <laughs> but he has plenty of other skills to rely on. And the world building and the seriousness with which he took the character, uh, the caliber of the performances and the themes he embraced in a superhero movie nonetheless set the bar high for the Marvel films that followed several years later. So what to do next? Incredibly, he struck gold again with a sprawling action film with another stellar cast, this time stripped of franchise trappings and set in its very own complex cinematic world. Inception seemed bold and exciting for 2010. I still remember being awestruck as many were watching Leonardo DiCaprio and Elliot Page standing in a Paris street that folded in on itself by literal dream logic. Uh, the concept of the film was exciting, entering the world of dream thieves, people who live by stealing thoughts from sleepers' mind. But Mo- Nolan went one better by having his protagonist implant an idea into the victim's mind, which I thought was a genius mm. uh, twist, you know. Uh, I saw Inception twice in the cinema and several times since. I always admired the fact that the film is basically wall-to-wall exp- exposition. <laughs> yeah. But Nolan's able to keep his long film lively by bouncing through dreams letting the spectacle run in tandem with the delivery of information. And there is so much information to download. Honestly, the last time I watched Inception, I was struck by how much it needs to get through. All the details of dreams within dreams, totems, past failures. It should be overwhelming, and yet somehow it's kind of not. The details of the dreams collapsing, the slow motion, uh, the quakes and upside-down dreams, probably allows Nolan to get away, or at least hide his action shortcomings in, in like wild visuals. And, of course, the film has, many, has, has as many metaphysical layers to po- pour over as dream layers. If you want them, it could be a metaphor for Nolan's filmmaking. And was that top still spinning at the end? I mean, <laughs> you know? And then, as like my esteemed colleague, a producer of promos, I can't go past the gut-shaking <laughs> that became a staple of trailers for a while. Inception wasn't just a remarkable film to kick off the tens. It was also a trendsetter in the world of selling films. Mm. Yeah. I think it's also kind of interesting that there's never been a sequel to Inception. Mm. You know, no film set in its universe and no real attempts to make a film like it. It's an, almost a unique blockbuster. Mm. Uh, so unlike any other summer multiplex stuffer, except for Nolan's 2020 film, Tenet, that kind of replaced dreams with time traveling stuff with much lesser effect and also strips the protagonist, named the protagonist, <laughs> uh, to a little more than a cipher. Um, it's kind of a curious failure for me, made all the more curious by its similarities to the huge success of Inception. Right. Okay. I still haven't seen Tenant, so 
Um, yeah, Inception's fantastic. Yeah, they could have called it Twinception. Twinception. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nolan is fantastic at doing those complex, t- making the complex narratives quite like compelling and engaging. Mm. Like you're in the moment of it. Yeah. Um, obviously, Memento, but even something that, like the storytelling of the time shifts of something like Dunkirk, you know. Um, oh. And that that kind of thing as well. So the fact that he did an Inception, I was always I marvelled at it. Yeah, that I was able to keep everything in my head and mm. not be confounded by exactly where we were, and and not just that, but actually using that for suspense. Yeah, um, that, it's masterful. Yeah, it really it's a is. real puzzle box of a film. It's so well put together. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I'm not going to talk much about Tenet because I realise you haven't mm. seen, and probably not a lot of people have. Mm. But it's an interesting comparison piece because yeah. they're both trying to do kind of similar things, right? You know, yeah, and having like action films going on around. Uh, kind of a complex world that's visually kind of interesting as well. Mm. But um, Inception just works so much better and it's such yeah. an interesting film. Nice. Mm. Cool. Uh, I watched a sports doco a few years ago interviewing people who had scored a goal in the final of a football World Cup. And there was Tardelli, the famous Italian defender who scored a cracker of a long-range goal in the 1982 World Cup and ran around the field screaming with his fists clenched. And when he was interviewed decades later, he said that He's married, he's had children, and while he loves them, his wedding, their births, they still came second to that feeling that he had. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the Spanish player, Iniesta, said he felt melancholic as they were doing the lap of honour just like 10 minutes after his country won their first World Cup mm. ever because he knew he would never feel this good again. I tell these stories because Bong Joon-ho <laughs> must live with the fact that he may have already made his defining masterpiece. Few films in the decade have achieved the universal acclaim of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, the only film to win both Best Foreign Language and Best Picture. Also the best, also the first film to win Best Picture Oscar and the Palme d'Or in over 60 years. Mm. It even has 99% of Rotten Tomatoes. Who is that contrary <laughs> critic? That <laughs> 1%. What a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so a film like that doesn't need me to sing its praises, and yet I must any parameter in which I try to ostracize it from my favorite films of the decade simply felt, well, like that 1% of Rotten Tomatoes, like intentionally contrarian. We've waxed lyrical on this film twice, both in our review and in our end-of-year awards 12 months ago. Parasite is captivating, holding up to repeat viewings. Much like Nightcrawler, Parasite is a humorous and thrilling critique of capitalism, cleverly putting us on the side of swindlers who take over a wealthy household. Jun Ho masterfully executes the story with the tipping point leading to an ending, both inevitable and wholly unpredictable. The film smoothly manoeuvres between its many changes in tone, being both satirical and moving, never sacrificing character for theme or plot for style, somehow achieving a rare alchemy. Parasite deserves all its accolades, but what will stay with me is the rare exhilaration of walking out of the cinema and wanting to walk right back in to experience it again. Mm. Yeah, absolute masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I say, it's the third time in a space of eighteen months <laughs> we've kind of been talking. I've been talking about it yeah. anyway. So you know, nothing more needs to be said. But I just couldn't ignore that. That was such a fantastic film. Yeah, yeah, good call. Uh, my second pick is a film that amazed me when I first saw it, and still impresses me now. And it didn't do that by inventing like a new cinematic language or stunning me with groundbreaking effects. It was simply a work of patience and ambition and observation that just happened to have some great performances as well. 2014's Boyhood told the story of Mason Evans over 12 years of his life as he navigates childhood and into his teen years. And it does it by filming over 12 goddamn years. <laughs> Who thinks to do this? <laughs> the commitment involved in taking time out of the rest of your career, which is still going on, to show up every year for 12 years and roll record on another bit of your movie? Ah, the commitment of the cast big-name actors like Ethan Hawke and Oscar winner for this film, Patricia Raquette, is pretty amazing as well. And the gamble that your child actor will still want to do this <laughs> and hopefully grow into a good enough actor to make it all worthwhile as well. And how do you manage to keep any of this looking the same? How do you have a style and vision that uh, survives 12 years of creative and technical evolution? Mm. It's astounding to me. It is, yeah. Um, Richard Linklater certainly does not lack for ambition. He's filmed an epic in every sense of the word, but it's an epic of small, almost inconsequential moments. It's like his life is. Uh, and memories, haircuts and holidays, the small, often familiar moments of growing up, the uncertainty of growing up, and the uncertainty of being a parent as well. Mm. Uh, I loved Hawk in particular, who drops in and out of the film as a disconnected father who is doing his own growing up as an adult. 
And again, what a task is an actor to follow a character's arc over three hours of screen time filmed over 12 years. <laughs> you know, that's amazing to me. Sure, there are things that don't hold up as well. Uh, the kids' performances, as you'd expect, aren't always solid, though they certainly are on point towards the end, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, this is a masterful film about the passing of time, which is something that Linklater seems absorbed by, and the very small incidents that shape a life. And did I mention he filmed it over 12 years? <laughs> um, you know, one, I was thinking about this later, and one of the things that makes it work so well is that he doesn't divide it up either. You know, mm. you could easily see somebody, a lesser filmmaker, yeah. putting like, you know, uh, seven, eight, like, yeah. you know, knocking, like literally, yeah, literally signposting d- it. Chapter titles. Yeah. But the way the child is just, you know, Mason's just a little bit older, a little bit older, and a little mm. bit older, uh, is a special effect in itself. Yeah. That, you know, I don't think anyone's going to replicate unless Linklater's currently filming yeah. another film right now. Yeah. Um, you know, that's an amazing special effect of its own. I mean, yeah. I can't think of any other film. I mean, maybe you could. People might say, "Oh, the Harry Potter films you watch mm. kids grow up," but not in one film, and not no. you know, in that no, that's in right, in that manner. Yeah, it's, it's really a once. It's, it's yeah, it's an achievement that probably no one's ever going to. Yeah, not a single film over that time. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, and um, I mean, unless you're the guys who made the uh, Raiders, you know. Oh, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> remade Raiders. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. And uh, the, the other thing that was through me with this was. It kind of came out of nowhere. You would think that this was something that, like, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke would be talking about. Like, this is you know, absolutely extraordinary that you know, they kept it all hidden. That it basically, it didn't get spoken about. Like, if it was Richard Linklater going, um, working with a bunch of no-names, essentially, then yeah. fair enough. But, you know, you've got, you know, famous oh, actors in it, so I was quite it, surprised they didn't talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, uh, that Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette mm. were having other careers. Yeah. You know how hard it can be, you know, apparently to, like, schedule films. Yeah. You're trying to schedule this every year, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. w- once a year for 12 years. You're trying to put yeah. this into your schedule and make yeah. it work. Uh, which is, yeah, and, and like I say, not letting anyone know that it's happening. Yeah, yeah. H- how did that happen? Yeah, then? and it was a real uh, renaissance for um, Patricia Arquette, I think, the boyhood. It really, yeah, absolutely. It was that, Boardwalk Empire, and then she went off and did, um, you know, Escape at Danny Mora, and she did a bunch of... And CSI Cyber. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. But no, this was... Uh, no, no, you're right, though. You know, that was... She really... The, the CSI Cyber and, like, Medium and stuff that were before this, and this really kind of le- yeah. re-legitimised her, um, I thought, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, but no, it's a, it's a fantastic film. And Linklater is a, a director, it's a perfect director for it, really, isn't he? Mm. He mm. is one of the few guys who would have that patience and that yeah. care and, and, and like you say, enjoy the small moments. And he's mm. always done that in his films, you know, uh, from Slacker and Days Confused, you know, mm. which ostensibly and kind of on the surface are about nothing. Mm. Yeah, but they are about those small moments that mean a lot to the individuals as they're yeah, living yeah. in. Yeah, they yeah. shape you, yeah. Cool. As a cinema-goer and devourer of VHS in the 80s, I was well-versed in action cinema. From the brilliant to the stupid, the genre has it all. For me, there is Die Hard, Aliens, Predator, Hard Boiled, and now one final film to round out the top five, The Raid Redemption. (laughs) A breathtaking film that had me literally giddy with excitement in multiple scenes. The Raid represented a watershed moment for my personal enjoyment of action cinema, when inventive camera work, kinetic direction, and exhilarating choreography combined to deliver a film of unparalleled enjoyment. What sets The Raid apart from merely capturing incredible acrobatics is that a director, Gareth Evans, is also interested in suspense. The moment when our hero is hiding in a wall cavity from hordes of attackers always stuck out to me. The film's events give us every expectation that the scene will resolve in like bloodshed violence, but it leans into the tension. The attacker shoving his machete through the wall trying to find his prey. The edge of the machete trapped in the very edge of our hero's cheek in close-up. And he has to avoid breathing as the machete is slowly pulled out. What I love about and, and also keep putting his hand up to it so to it's to wipe the blood off as it goes yeah, back out. To wipe the blood off, that's so good. So good. What I love about the scene is that it shows the director's intention as a filmmaker to rely on suspense and atmosphere in an action film. That's not something I was expecting when I went into this film. I thought, us is going to be, uh, you know, like Ong Back was, which is just capturing yeah. an absolute master at his craft, or like Jackie Chan films. You know, that's not taking away from them, but that is a different thing than this is. Yeah. This is actually telling a story in an intense... That's why I think this f- makes this film so successful and why a lot mm. of audiences still talk about this film. It's the story and the suspense. Yeah. And Gareth Evans proves with the follow-up, Ray 2, that it was no fluke. 
And even I don't know, six or seven years later, every inch of the raid feels like a game changer for the action mm. genre for me. Yeah, I just love this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do too. I yeah, do too. what a great choice. Staying with action, and I am denied over this conclusion for a while. But here goes. Let's talk about John Wick again. <laughs> Keanu Reeves' late career return to action stardom wasn't my favorite of this franchise, as we've discussed on a previous spoiler alert. I really fell hard for the more stylized, higher budget action of the sequel, and it's crazy open ending that left me wanting a part three, just like. Beamed into my eyeballs immediately, please. But I still really enjoyed 2014's John Wick. Watching it again for the, uh, our recent episode on the, on the, Wick, the Wickology, <laughs> I was struck by its slow build almost a half hour before any action of consequence. But when the action kicks off, it's a doozy. All takedowns and headshots. <laughs> brutal as hell and performed by an actor with a gangly dancer's elegance. Less reliant on CG and more based on solid stunt work. Along with the fight choreography, the other standard of the franchise was the hitmen's Harry Potter world created for the films, all built around the Continental, the hotel of choice for the film's crime community, ruled over by Ian McShane's Winston. But the importance of John Wick in the 2010s is definitely the effect it had on action cinema. Uh, there are currently two more sequels in development, a spin-off movie and a long-floated TV series centred around the Continental. Director Chad Stahelski directed the Wick sequels and has six more films either in development or announced, including... We haven't talked about this for a while. Highlander. <laughs> so I look forward to talking about that for the next few more years as it gets cancelled and pushed back. And, <laughs> and, he's directed, and he has directed the action sequences of four other films, including two superhero flicks. Co-director David Leach has helmed Atomic Blonde, which may yet see a crossover with John Wick, by the way, <laughs> um, which I can kind of see. Atomic Wick. Atomic Wick. <laughs> <laughs> uh he directed uh, Hobson Shaw and Deadpool 2. Right. Likes to Helsky, he is second unit or united on a bunch of films as well. But it's not just the creators themselves being picked to bring the wick to other films. There was also a lot of other movies coming out that expressly seemed to want to add a twist of wick. Amongst others, Better Call Saul's Bob Odenkirk <laughs> is making his unlikely action debut in the very wickish looking Nobody. Yeah. Uh, the Hitman's bodyguard seemed heavily inspired by the world building of the Wickverse, and Jennifer Garden's Peppermint expressly marketed, marketed itself as a female John Wick. Right. And of course, if you're going to be a game changer, then eventually it's got to go bad, right? Hence the producer of 2018's, here we go, Robin Hood, <laughs> claimed the stuff we're doing with the bone arrow is the same thing that Keanu does with the gun. I wish they hadn't. Mm. Uh, but the thing with action is it, it is trend-driven. Someone does something fresh, bullet cam in the Matrix, shaky cam in Bourne, and it can seem to change the game. But all, as all the bad woo riffs over the years have shown, there's a difference between doing something fresh with genuine style and trying to ape it. Stahelski, Leach and Reeves were onto something with John Wick. But whether that style will evolve or be replaced, I guess only time will tell. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, fantastic. Great, great film. And like I say, really influential. I, I love that quote, Robin Hood, you know, oh, what yeah. he's doing. That's like me saying, oh, what I'm doing with Cricket Bat is kind of the same as what Kate Williamson's doing with Cricket Bat. Um. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Um, yeah, that's but a, that's the thing, isn't it? People think that they can just, you know, yeah, have a guy jump through the air with a gun or something, yeah. and suddenly they're John Woo, you know? It's, yeah, exactly. It's so much more complex, complex than that. Yeah, that's obviously, right. Obviously, you know? Yeah. But exactly, and, and the imitators across the board from movies to music and everything else, we've been through it many times, Tarantino and yeah, The Matrix yeah, yeah. and everything else. Um, yeah, that shouldn't discolour what has or sustain what's come before. Yeah, uh, with, with Wick, which is really um, it has become shorthand, you know. Yeah, exactly. John Wick, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way people talk mm. about it, I'm sure pitch meetings are going on all over the place. Yeah, where they're going. It's like you know, uh, John Wick, but with in outer space. Yeah, you know, John Wick meets the Breakfast Club. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hang on. It's Write that down. Yeah, that's Make right. Sure. <laughs> See if Judd Nelson's available. <laughs> See if Judd Nelson's alive. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh. Now, there's an endless array of films about first love and heartbreaks, about people finding their true calling and finding a family. There are films about failing marriages with promises of new horizons. These are fertile ground for stories based on cherished memories. But there are a few films about the end of life that aren't observed through younger eyes. But if there is one film in the last decade that captures loss with all its merciless effects, it is Michael Haneke's Unforgettable Amour. A director at the height of his game delivering a film of supreme confidence a two-person play that doesn't feel staged. Rather, it feels as if we are experiencing the disintegration of life itself. Emmanuel Riva lays bare a devastating performance, a woman watching her dignity being stripped away by the tyranny of age. Life changes in a quietly unnerving instant where we feel the separate pain of both husband and wife. The camera and the viewer 
never leave the house again. Instead, watching the walls close in. Jean-Louis Trigonet becomes both a kind carer and frustrated husband, supportive and yet crumbling under the weight of responsibility. Amour reminds us what love is, devotion and sacrifice, patience and perseverance. But it also shows the cruelty of time, the idea that our golden years can turn to rust. It doesn't flinch. It delivers these themes with long, slow shots. It lets us observe and share the horror of mortality while reflecting on what constitutes love. Oh, great stuff. Great yeah, stuff. Great I film. love that film. And yeah, that was just blew me away. Yeah. And the performances in that, especially, especially Emmanuel Riva, I just thought that was something where I was just phenomenal. You know, yeah. she was so good in that. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't expecting uh, I wasn't expecting that even from Hanukkah. I'd seen some of his stuff before, but that just masterful, incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing this at the Bridgeway. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I saw it with you. I think we saw it for a podcast, though. Yeah, right? we did. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. And um, there was a couple in front of me, and just as, because it goes silent at the end of it, and yeah. the guy just turns to the and says, Well, last time you choose a film. And so <laughs> I, I hope she dumped him. Because <laughs> that was, you know, it's a marvelous film. Oh, I think it's a masterpiece. It yeah. really is. I mean, it's, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but I, I really think that. Uh, it's it's it does what cinema should sometimes, you know, and uh, analyze deep themes, and particularly from a perspective that we don't always see. Like it would be very tempting to have that being seen from a younger point of view and seeing how that affects them and how it affects right. how their life goes on. But instead, it just captures these two people, um, and and that's what we're left with. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Great choice. Look, I've talked a lot over the last few years about this golden age of horror we live in where the art house seems to have merged with Grindhouse, reinvigorating the horror genre and breathing new life into old tropes. I've tried to figure out at times what might have been patient zero for this outbreak of fresh frights, and I think it might have been 2014's The Babadook, an excellent psychological chiller from Australia that became a cult hit, and more recently, cinema's most unexpected gay icon. <laughs> In the same year, we got the black-and-white Iranian vampire movie A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, an exquisite-looking film which I just adored. But while these two and a smattering of other horrors from the same year might be able to claim to be the beginnings of this era, the tipping point for me, the film that really made me realise horror fans were right in the middle of something special, was 2015's It Follows. Uh, with its drifting steady cam, airy wide shots that force your eyes to dart around the edge of the frame on the lookout for threats, and its electronic score used dreadfully, perfectly for once, not just as a nod to 80s genre films the filmmaker loves, It Follows has plenty of heady John Carpenter cues, while director David Robert Mitchell might be making a kind of slasher, he's doing something so much more here as well. In old school slasher films, it was always claimed that sex would get you killed. And here it's literally true, <laughs> as a malevolent force that can take any identity stalks a teenager after she sleeps with her boyfriend. The force is unstoppable. It can, it can be run from, and that's it. Unless you have sex with someone else, in which case the carnal curse moves to them. But should they be killed, well then it's back on you. An STD turned into a real, you know... Mm life and death killer. To make things more difficult and to heighten the paranoia, only the victim and any past carriers of the curse can see the attack coming. <laughs> it's a film of constant dread since anyone moving through the frame, which the camera nervously explores, could be intent on killing. And although it doesn't have big jump scares, it's pretty scary enough. Uh, I remember going to the cinema with a friend of the show, I don't know if I've told the story, uh, Baron Devon and his <laughs> wife, yeah. and when a scene involving an impossibly tall man entering a room <laughs> occurred, she just jumped over a seat ran out the door and did not come back for the rest of the film. I don't think you have told me that, no. Yeah, no, that was it. She just waited outside for us. And, and I said to Darren, I said, oh, do you want to get it? Fine, it's fine. And we just watched the rest of the film. <laughs> and she waited at, at, at the um, downstairs at the bridge bridgeway for us. That's amazing. Yeah, classic. Eh? You'd be stoked as a director to know that someone had done that. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. And, you know, she wasn't angry or whatever. It's yeah. just, it was just too much. Too much, yeah. It. Yeah. So, look, it's... It's a shifting, subtle metaphor for all kinds of feelings of angst and sexual traumas, which Mitchell plays out for often painful effect and a really effective horror film as mm, well. Yeah. And I think for me, that's when I realised, oh, here we are. You know, there's really we're in the middle of something really great with yeah. great work being done. You know. Mm. I was I was really curious as to which I, I because as we're well aware, and as you stated, we're in the kind of golden age of horror. I was wondering which one you were gonna. Yeah. Kind of go to as yeah. as the defining one, or, yeah. or at least not necessarily most successful, but maybe like say the most influential, the one that oh, to totally signposted the way. Yeah. So for me, that was the one that where I realised, you know, and like yeah. I say, I think Babadook came earlier, and yeah, probably a couple of other films as well, and obviously heaps afterwards, which would have been just amazing. Yeah. But that was the one where I realised, you know, oh, we're in an era where people are doing great work here. Mm. 
Uh, so for my last one, look, and I really toot and froed about this one, um, as I did with all of them, to be honest, but my last choice was Carol, which is an intriguing love story unfolds with a pair of performances to save her from Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, as Carol and Therese slowly circle each other with increasing interest. The film tells the story from the point of view of the two women. It also holds the feminine gaze rather than masculine. The language, both verbal and body, relating to two women drawn to each other. The male characters are the antagonistic ones, mystified that either of the central women don't want exactly what they, the men, demand. Directed with vision and subtlety by Todd Haynes, considering his previous work, especially on Far From Heaven, Haynes seems like not only the obvious, but also the perfect choice to guide us through the world of Carol. The cinematography by Edward Lachman, who has done work for director Haynes before, as well as Soderbergh and Sofia Coppola's dreamy virgin suicides, is a real standout, combining elegantly with the costume, makeup and set design to recreate the early 1950s of New York so well. The memorable music is provided by the Coen Brothers' loyal composer Carter Burwell. The main theme conjures a yearning and haunts the characters throughout the film. I really love the music in this. It's so rare to hear a memorable theme done for a film. You know what I mean? We've talked oh, about absolutely. that a lot, yeah. uh, about how characters don't get themes, and this he does it so well in this. Blanchett's title character, like a Hitchcock blonde, appears confident, aloof, and untouchable. But unlike a Hitchcock blonde, she is not to fall into the arms of a man or acquiesce to his expectations. The drive to realise her own desires is stronger than being both emotionally and literally blackmailed into conforming to misery. As Therese, Mara has the quieter role, but her uncertainty is not based on questioning her sexuality, but rather the affliction of youth. She sees Carol as a formed character, one who has wisdom and experience of life, someone who has initially chosen a well-trodden, easy path and now is forging her own track through this kind of untamed wilderness quite bravely. And there is an attraction toward Therese because she has an innate strength of character that Carol can immediately detect as well, kind of realising she has to kind of bring it out in her, a lack of pretension and a willingness to say yes to everything, something that Therese herself later laments, but Carol and I suspect the audience applaud. By the end of the film, and indeed well after the credits have rolled, the attraction between the two resonates because the characters stay true to themselves. The film is unusual, maybe even unique, in mainstream cinema, and then the gay love affair doesn't descend into tragedy or ever make the protagonists succumb to guilt over their desires. Because of the semiotics, it was like witnessing, for me, a foreign culture. Right. It is love seen through the prism of female desire and lesbian attraction. So you really feel like a stranger in a strange land if you're, you know, a white heterosexual male like yeah. me, you know. So a story told via a different means of communication and the pace of the romance tells us so much about the temperament and the maturity of the characters. Uh, and I actually found this one of the most affecting and memorable love stories of recent times, probably along with the more. Mm. And it's kind of flip side of it. But it was really interesting. And, and, and like I say, it really felt like, you know, sometimes you watch, I don't know, Japanese cinema or something and... Mm you'll feel this uh, like it's alien but it's really fascinating and it's compelling and it's and then when they try and tell that story they might recreate it or remake it and it just doesn't work yeah it just seems you know it happens across cultures where they'll try and take a comedy from some country and put it into english and it just won't work yeah and, I, I actually get a little bit of that vibe from watching older films too when you watch films from like the 30s or 40s, yeah right yeah you know uh, we're just the way they film and the, you know the, the way everything's delivered and the yeah. styles are so uh, different from what you'd get how you perform that material now yeah that's right and uh, yeah and that's what I loved about Carol I really felt like a, a, you know going behind the curtain and uh, yeah I recommend this to anyone who hasn't seen it Carol's amazing I love yeah. that film yeah fantastic fantastic alright uh, look finally for me bear with me as I talk once more about my love for Rogue One <laughs> a film that clearly, surely, shouldn't be amongst the top ten films of the 2010s. But here we go. <laughs> it is among my favourites of the 2010s. And you could make an argument that it's important for what it said about the possible direction of a Star Wars franchise going forward as well. As well as this being one of my favourite good times in the cinema. As I said, there are reasons for Rogue One not to make this list. It's choppy. It's first two acts straining under what we can only imagine was the film's tortuous birth through reshoots and re-edits. We leap from planet to planet with some locations lost in the shuffle, and sometimes it feels like characters are lost in the upheaval as well. I always felt that they did too much to provide motivation for 
the lead Genuso to embrace the cause to the point where I don't really know whether it's revenge or love for her father or a sudden embrace of the rebellion's ideals. Mm. I'm not really sure what's driving her at that point. Yeah. Too many too many choices. But that final third is just bliss. One of the best war films of recent years. It gives us a heist, a dramatic land battle, and perhaps the finest space battle in cinema, with Return of the Jedi being the uh, only possible rival for me for that throne. <laughs> uh, Gareth Edwards knows how to shoot scale, and he knows how to compose for it. It's one of the things that made his Godzilla work, even as, as its script floundered. Here he hovers a Star Destroyer over city and has a space battle that takes space with the backdrop of a gorgeous shimmering blue of a planet behind it. We always know where we are in these battles, which is no mean feat considering everything that's going on. And there's so much to enjoy. Star Destroyers are rammed into each other, Y-Wings on a bombing run, AT-ATs chasing our heroes along a tropical beach, General Merrick laughing amidst the chaos as he gets to kick some ass, which always makes me smile. <laughs> and some, some, something else I appreciate, and spoiler alert if it's needed at this point, but this is a rare cinematic suicide mission that's a sin suicide mission no one is getting out of this alive, and I admire the filmmaking team for going there. Uh, I've seen plenty of reviews after the fact pointing out uh, this was inevitable, but it certainly was not. There's a ton of ways that Edwards and his writers could have found to let, say, Jin and Cassian escape to live out a quiet life, or perhaps spread their continuing adventures across a range of books and comics and other mm. media. Uh, it's slightly amazing to me that they gave that up uh, for the grim fate they gave them. I mean, how many other big screen blockbusters risked this? We've talked plenty about the undeaths of Marvel and X-Men. And there's even Suicide Squad itself, which turned out to be anything but a Suicide Squad. <laughs> I could go on, of course, but I want to touch on something that makes Rogue One seem particularly prescient, and that's the, o and that's the overwhelming success of The Mandalorian. Uh, after a sequel trilogy that's been a roller coaster for critic, critics and fans, The Mandalorian has benefited by some of the same approaches as, as Rogue One. As dirty and gritty as most Star Wars is, of course. It concentrates on characters we've never seen before, only briefly brushing it up against the Skywalkers. And of course, when it does deliver some Skywalker, it really does lean into <laughs> it, giving something fans might have imagined and hoped to see and are finally shown. After all, both Mando and Rogue One finished with a, a Skywalker with a lightsaber in a hallway. And in <laughs> both cases, the fans seem pretty happy about it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen this, so I can't really say. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't seen it this month. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I might be a bit hazy on it, uh, but yeah, um, it's been since the last lockdown for yeah, me. That's right. I totally get this, and I, um, as you say, a lot of it's about the enjoyment you have in cinema, which is a lot of where my ones came from. You know, I, th I think every oh, single one of mine yeah, is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. just one of the films that I was just like, I can't wait till this gets comes out on Blu-ray. Like, you famously have a DVD library. I, I've been stripping mine back, but I do hold firm to it. Yeah. If this if I love this film, I will get this on Blu-ray. Right, yeah, yeah. So I only own about ten Blu-rays. <laughs> one of them is um is Nightcrawler. And yep. uh, Rogue One would be another one. I haven't got it yet, but um I really enjoyed Rogue One. Uh having watched it a couple of times now, I would um say, hey, just wake me up when they go and do the sniper job with, you know, Mads Mickelson and all that stuff. Sure. That that part from then on, I'm totally You're on in? board. I'm totally on board. Everything before that and there's some great parts earlier. Like, I love the opening, and I love when they uh, meet the two guys at the Jedi Temple, mm. you know. But the actual plot there, um, not so much. But um, yeah. but that second half is just... It's the most consecutive good Star Wars minutes for me since the original trilogy. Yeah. And I can't give it much higher praise than that. Um, oh, that's 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I, that, yeah first half, two-thirds, however you yeah. feel. But um, it, it is it is kind of sketchy. But there's some great world building going yeah. on there as well. Totally, like Jeddah seems like a fully realized world to me when they're on that planet. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and the big thing I really liked, and I spoke of at the time, was I really liked that um, they that you had the guys who believed, who didn't have the Force, but they believed in the Jedi yeah. thing of the yeah, kind totally. of myth. It almost reminded me of you know, um, I don't know someone believing in King Arthur or, you know, or, or St. George slaying a dragon. Mm. Or, you know what I mean? Like someone believing in that and try like a, you know, Don Quixote kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I really like that. Uh, I like that aspect of, of that. So, yeah, that kind of world building I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, and that second half is just fantastic. And then, you know, you get the payoff of Vader at the end. But I really enjoyed Ben Mendelsohn as well. I think that he I, – I think something that some of the 
other things suffer from for me, some of the sequels and stuff, is they don't really have a great villain. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, let's, let's count Palpatine. Um, but, you know, you, yeah. yeah. And whereas I, I really like Ben Mendelsohn in this, and I think he's, 100%. I he's, think he's really a good. Fantastic villain. And what I love about him is what he's trying to do is I, I get it. Yeah. I understand his villainy. Yeah. It's not, I don't know what Snoke's about. Yeah. You know, um, but I know what Mendelssohn's about. He's, yeah. he's, he's middle management who wants to be higher up in the ladder. Yeah, that's right. Know? And that's a perfectly understandable, yeah. relatable yeah. Um, driver. Yeah, and and I mean, if he's not villain enough for you, you've got Grand Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader, so you've got yeah, enough. Yeah, totally. totally. You've got enough. And I like the idea of, even though uh, one of the things I really don't like about the film is uh, the execution of the CGI mm. uh, Moff Tarkin, I find difficult to take. But I like the idea of these two guys in the middle of you know having yeah. their own their own little feud. Yeah, that's know, right. Is, it's a great idea. I can, I can yeah. understand the urge to have that character involved, and mm. I think it makes them makes uh, Mendelssohn's character that much richer. Yeah, S- fantastic. So look, we just went through our ten favorite films of the decade, and we didn't talk about this beforehand. We just split it. We said you do five, you do five. Um, so we didn't cross over, which is uh, yeah, which incredible, is, incredible. Yeah, which is I quite, did. I did have half thought to what you might might have on your list. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You probably knew I was going to get the raid and maybe um, Nightcrawler in there. I would have thought maybe. Yeah, but, yeah and I, th- I thought you might go with Parasite, which was, mm. uh, to be fair, you know, I've got a little short list of films I, uh, I missed, so should I just yeah. go through them? Really yeah, quick? go for it. Uh, Dunkirk. Oh yeah, Dunkirk. That was another uh, one I was thinking yeah, about. I was late to the year that came out in 2016, but I adored it when I saw it. I was like. Why did I sleep on this film? Yeah. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, I had that as well, yeah, actually. That's amongst the most affecting Coen Brothers films for me. Like, mm. emotionally, that one just hit me really hard. Yeah. Uh, Hereditary, for which I'm still choosing to believe Tony Collette won an Oscar for. Yeah, I was surprised that Hereditary didn't get onto this list, actually. Yeah. That was where it follows, totally. filled that gap. It only it's... didn't make the list because I was trying to think about what the what was the film that set me off on this. Yeah. You know? um, but easily could have. Um Moonlight, which was just... Yeah, it's another one I had here, yeah. And Parasite, of course, as you say, a masterpiece. Uh, And also because I talked about the importance of John Wick as an action film, it would have been remiss of me not to mention here The Raid. Yeah. uh, Which was absolutely jaw-dropping. I can remember the experience of watching that. Yeah. Just insane. And the fact... I mean, like you say, plenty of um, great... Great work in, in establishing that tension and stuff. Mm. But those fight scenes are incredible. So oh, yeah. Never forget uh, that. Yeah. And um, the end fight scene that has the two heroes yeah. fighting a smaller guy yeah. who you are terrified of. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like, you feel bad for them. You feel bad, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the two guys. You're having to fight that little guy. Oh, man, you put yeah. it. Because yeah. he is built up to be just the most savage killer. Oh, I uh, yeah, I love that film so much. I could watch it. Um, uh, any day of the week. So yeah. many broken like uh, lights. Eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. So <laughs> people getting their heads smashed into tiles and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, we saw that together. I think we yeah, went the I opening night. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, a couple of the other ones that uh, were in and around there for me. Um, I actually Whiplash. I really enjoyed Whiplash. I remember yep. seeing that uh, maybe a month or two after Nightcrawler, and just thinking, "Wow, this is these films are great." You yeah. know, uh, and the way that J.K. Simmons is in that film, fantastic. But again, mm. as a taut film. I really enjoy taut films with a focus of plot. If sure, they can pull yeah, it off, yeah. Um, just, just it's like a, it's like a marathon runner or something. Just absolutely mm. on point and just start to finish. They're going to do it, and it's thin, wiry, going to get it done. And Whiplash was like that. Uh, young adult was oh, another young one. Adult. It only just made it in, and and I rewatched oh, this recently because uh, my wife had never film. seen it, and I'd seen it. I think at least a couple of times. And I love that film so much. It's another one of those films that just speaks to me. This mm. uh, again, um, it's actually the film. It's done by the team who did um, Juno, and mm. I've never watched Juno again. And I've watched Young Adult like three times. Yeah. And um, and it's not taking away from Juno. It's just no. that Young Adult was for me. And uh, a lot of the reason I really love, um, you know, uh, Diablo Cody and 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 Jason Reitman and. and Charlie Saron and that, you know. And Patton Oswalt's really well. Yeah, cast look, I as think well. Juno's a great film. Yeah. Uh, but young adult speaks to me. As yeah. Well. And and perhaps it's my age as well. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. 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 And um Inherent Vice. Oh, or yeah. or as a lot of um people like to call it incoherent vice, which I love. <laughs> I take quite a lot of it's it's like Test Match Cricket for me. I take pride in the fact that I enjoy that film. It's like when we you and I both really love Tree of Life and everyone else yeah, just yeah, was yeah, like yeah. frothing at the mouth and I kind of took a 
And that wasn't the reason I loved it, but it became like a badge oh, of honor. Look, like, absolutely. <laughs> if, if you come up to me and say, I hated that film, I would just smile and go, yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can understand their reaction as well, but yeah. uh, no, it's, it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Inherent Vice, I really love that as well. Uh, look, and another one that was always going to make it, but I just kind of thought I'll, I'll stick to my guns and go with one action film. So I went with Raid, was Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, Again, yeah, sure, totally. That was more of. Again, going into how I felt coming out of that film, or when I was in that film, I was just I couldn't wait to see that film again, mm. um, you know. And I've watched it at least once more again, and mm. I just I, nothing will ever beat it that first time. But the action sequences and that again, it's one of those ones where the plot there's a lot of MacGuffins, and who really sure. cares when you watch it a second time? You're like, oh, come on, just yeah. get on with it. But those action sequences, they've yeah. got like two or three, which are just as good as you'll see all decade. Yeah. Um, another one I had was her. Um, with Joaquin Phoenix, mm. um, and I love that film, and that was I was pretty close with that as well. Um, and Drive, another one, of course, with Ryan Gosling. We all know about that. Yeah, Inside Low Alan Davis and Moonlight. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah, Dunkirk as well. Kind of occurred to me. There's quite a few that I was just on the fringes, and I was like, Yeah, it's uh, horribly hard to pick five from a, de- uh, a decade, as I found out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to pick ten. So yeah, we did quite well there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so that was um the decade. What about uh, in the last month? What's your uh, film of the yeah, month? I, I've got to go with my film of the month. There's Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom uh, yeah. on Netflix. So I just recommend everyone go and check that out. What about for you? Oh, uh, so this month I saw at the theatre. Oh, wow. Ooh, Freaky, the body swap comedy horror by Chris, uh, director Christopher Landon, with a terrific performance by Vince Vaughn, right. uh, swapping bodies with a teenage girl. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he plays this terrifying serial killer because he's a huge guy. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. he ends up swapping bodies with this teenage girl, and now he has to try and stop her from killing, going on a killing spree. Right. Oh, have you not heard of this? No. You, you're giving me that look. I've not like, heard of it at all. Have you not heard of this? No. Uh, Vince Vaughn is fantastic. Like right. It, you could have imagined someone leaning into effeminate, you know, mm. uh, you know, running in an overly effeminate style and whatever, mm. but, he, but, he, but he plays it relatively subtly. Yeah. And um, it's really good work. It's some of the best stuff I've seen from him for a long time. Excellent. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but to prime myself for Freaky... I watched Landon's previous 80s comedy gimmick crossed with the horror film Happy Death Day, uh, a film that turns Groundhog Day into a slasher film. Mm. And that flick was even better, I thought. I, I really enjoyed it. The horror comedy hybrid is tough, mm. you know, and it's, I guess it's a reason it's not done very often nowadays. Mm. Like I remember when Fright Night came out as a remake and it really flopped and it was like, yeah. oh, that's a, that's a shame. Cause yeah, I really enjoyed the remake. That, exactly, yeah. me too, and it had some good stuff. I think we talked about that on our, one of our first podcasts, actually. Yeah, 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 and I think it was seen as like uh, horror comedy, so mm. let's not do them. Um, so that, they're, they're rare. Mm. Um, not a lot of films try it, but Happy Death Day sticks to the landing, mostly. Uh, and it's all, all on the back of Lee Jessica Roth, I, f- I felt, who mm. was just wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen the sequel? Not yet. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah, I hear. It's, I hear. it's almost a different genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, is she, yeah. I don't is give she great again? What's that? Is she good again? She is. She's really yeah. good. And it's a very, uh, it was interesting because it was a very different tone. Mm. Um, oh, I'm sure it will be. And yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not, a, it's, and at first I was like, ah, but it gets quite inventive and quite yeah. enjoyable. And once you go, oh, this is actually a oh, cool. completely different genre, really. Cool. Um, it's doing something different. So I don't want to give anything away, but it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought she was great. Like, I, yeah. in this, like, what I really liked is she sold the inevitable, I guess, but mm. um, arc from, you know, somebody you don't like at the beginning of the film yeah. to someone you really care about at the end of the film. Yeah. And she made that feel, um, I don't reels maybe not the right word, mm. but I did follow her and I did care about her and I yeah. and I grew to like her as a character. So that, yeah. that's not always easy to do in a, yeah. a film about you know um, sort of time hopping serial killers. <laughs> and, you know. yeah. Spoiler alert! Okay, so that's spoiler alert for this month, uh, yeah. first one of the year. Yeah, and so the uh, the music we're going out to is from uh, the film that I enjoyed the most month, which was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, mm-hmm. and uh, Ma Rainey was a, a real person as well so um but this is the uh song from the movie yep. uh, performed by viola davis and um yeah so thanks to everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed the top 10 and maybe pop onto the spoiler alert um page and tell us your top 10 of the decade yeah i'd really be interested in what yeah, yeah. Say, yeah i think i think when we post this we should put a poll up or put yeah. up a yeah. something in there yeah good idea yeah tell yeah. us how wrong we are yeah totally yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks everyone for listening we'll see you next month all right take care all right, boys, you didn't see the rest. 
Now I'm gonna show you the best. Ma Rainey's gonna show you her black bottom. Way down south in Alabama, I got a friend they call Dancing Sammy, who's crazy about all the latest dances. Black bottom stomps and the new baby prances. The other night at a swell affair, soon as the boys found out that I was there, they said, come on, Ma, let's go to the cabaret. When I got there, they began to say, I want to see that dance they call the Black Bottom. When I say that I want these things, I mean that I want them, and I don't want to have to ask again. <laughs> <laughs>